0: Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to The Calvary Road with Pastor
1: Sam Allen. And sometimes I've noticed that we're so concerned with the physical needs of people around us that we forget that the ultimate issue of life, that the primary issue of life, is spiritual. Why? Because everything physical is temporal. Even these bodies, if you're young, you're thinking, oh, what a bummer. If you're older, you're thinking, that's great.
0: For the next four broadcasts, Pastor Sam will be taking us through the entirety of Matthew chapter 9 in a message entitled, The Great Physician. Chapter 9 covers a multitude of events in the earthly life of Jesus and is full of pictures of our Lord's power and mercy.
1: Matthew chapter 9, first 17 verses, the title of our message, The Great Physician. One of the great joys of my early Christian experience was a book given to me by a friend. It was called The Great Physician by G. Campbell Morgan. And in that book, what Morgan did is, is he went through every personal encounter of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels, and he just sort of gave some background and fleshed it out a bit. Like, like he'll meet Matthew here and just says, come follow me, and Matthew just gets up and goes. Well, there had to be more to the story, and, and Morgan really was just good at developing all of that. Well, there's a series out came out the last few years by Ken Guyer, intimate moments with the Savior or intense moments with the Savior or instructive moments with the Savior, I could not more highly recommend a series of devotional books, especially intimate moments because that book just fleshes out some of these stories so wonderfully. And then the prayers at the end powerful. So in any case, we've entitled this message, and and it should be obvious why. We read it during the worship, The Great Physician. Well, it all begins for us then with this paralytic who is brought to Jesus by a group of his friends. Not a bad idea from the get-go. If you have friends in need, bring them to Jesus. We usually don't jump right to the application, but that's going to be it. And we find these guys going to some real extremes in order to do so. Now, you don't get the full picture in Matthew's Gospel, and so you want to get in the habit, if you're familiar at all with Matthew's Gospel, of finding these stories in the other Gospels, filling in the blanks, getting the the whole big picture. Well, we read they got into a boat, crossed over, and he came to his own city. That would be Capernaum. That was his base during the time of his um, ministry. Then we read, Behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Here it is, four friends bringing their friend to Jesus. But Matthew really doesn't tell us the extreme they went to in order to bring their friend to Jesus. You see, Jesus was teaching in the house. Most believe it was Peter's house there in Capernaum. And uh, as the house got full, first around the table, then around the rooms, and then the courtyard, and then ultimately it would spill over into the streets, these guys absolutely couldn't get in. So what they did is they went up on the rooftop, flat roofs in that area of um Jerusalem and the surrounding cities as well as Capernaum. And so there they are and they get up on the flat roof and they begin to just take the roof apart. They lower the guy down. So if you put yourself into the scene, it really comes alive for you. If you put yourself in Peter's shoes, it really comes alive because that's your roof and this is your house and who's going to fix that mess? But in any case, they they find a way. And I'd encourage you, if you have friends that are struggling, find a way. We don't know that this guy was all for going, but for all intents and purposes, he was definitely along for the ride. And they bring him, they open up the roof, they drop him down into the the midst of that great crowd, gathered around Jesus, listening to Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and says, Son, it's a word of tender endearment. It's not just... Son, it's really child. It's the word that someone would use for their little boy, their their little fella. And, And so Jesus uses this term. And then he says, be of good cheer. Cheer up. Your sins are forgiven you. Now, I'm certain that that meant something to the paralytic. But I'm thinking that his friends are probably thinking at this point, hey, wait a minute. We didn't bring him here for the sin thing. We brought him here for the healing thing. And sometimes I've noticed that we're so concerned with the physical needs of people around us that we forget that the ultimate issue of life, that the primary issue of life is spiritual. Why? Because everything physical is temporal. Even these bodies. If you're young, you're thinking, oh, what a bummer. If you're older, you're thinking, that's great. Because, man, these bodies start to wear out, and I so look forward to that new body fashioned by the Lord for me, fit for heaven and eternity. But for now, I'm living in this one, and, and this one's growing old and decaying and struggling, and well, not as bad as this guy, obviously, though. He was paralytic. In that day, a hopeless and helpless situation. And and not many would have reached out or made a difference. These guys decided to. And they did all they could do to bring him to Jesus. Jesus looks at them, looks at him, says, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Now, it is important that we do recognize that there are many who look at the conservative Christian church as being so heavenly-minded, we're no earthly good. At least that's sometimes the accusation. And it should never be true for us. We need to focus primarily on the souls of men. Why? The souls of men, women, boys and girls are eternal. But we want to care for the whole person. Why? Why? Jesus did. Jesus does. And he shows that care. They did what they could. He did, well, more than they came expecting. They came looking, no doubt, for healing, hoping for, praying for, and healing is about to come. But first he deals with that issue, that thing that would keep him from the kingdom. Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. It may be today friends have brought you. Maybe you've come because you have a physical need or a or a relational need. I'm certain there are some people or will be throughout the day that are here because they're struggling in either a relationship with their spouse or with their children or with their parents or someone. And and, and people have said, Just come to church, just hear the word of God. God can make a difference. And you need to know that, yeah, He will. But the primary thing is not going to be that relationship. It's going to be your relationship with him. Because if you get that right, well, the rest of it's going to flow. The rest of it's going to come together. And it's very difficult in the energies of the flesh to, to do the work of the spirit of God, to, to try to cement broken relationships or repair or heal broken relationships. Now, it's inevitable if I mention friends bringing you or, you know, maybe wives getting their husband here that someone's going to think, my gosh, she called and said something or, you know, I talked to Pastor Bud and now Sam's bringing it up. You need to know that's never how it works. I never listen to my messages on the weekend. So if you've left me one, you can count on Tuesday. I'll check it and think, oh, wow, that, should, that probably was pretty interesting for them. But the way it works is we're just looking at the word and, and if it applies, it applies. But you need to know the number one issue for you here today, no matter what else you might be dealing with, is you need your sins to be forgiven. If you're a Christian and you realize that you've separated yourself from fellowship with God through thought or word or deed, sins of commission or omission, you want to confess that and get right with him. Why? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. Of all unrighteousness. If you've never prayed and said, Jesus, I recognize that I was made by and for you, that you're holy and I'm sinful, I want forgiveness, I want to be cleansed. Hey, Jesus would say to you, as he did to that paralytic son or daughter, your sins are forgiven you. His number one priority. Well, At once, we read in verse three, some of the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. What's that mean? Well, they understood that only God could forgive sin. And if Jesus were not, in fact, the son of God, well, he had no business telling this guy his sins were forgiven. If Jesus were not God, the son, he had no business telling this guy, your sins are forgiven. Now, you need to know that when we sin, when you sin, when I sin, that there are at least two people we need to get right with. We need to get right with the person we sinned against, and then we need to get right with the Lord whom we've sinned against, because all sin is ultimately against God. It's not just us and other people. Now we learn in the Sermon on the Mount, if we're going to come asking forgiveness, we need to be willing to forgive. And there's some very important principles when it comes to forgiveness just built into the word. One of them being, the one who forgives is the one who pays. And, 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 And here's how this works. Say you loan somebody 500 bucks. And some of you are thinking, man, I wish I had 500 bucks to even, you know, loan. But, but say you have it and you loan it. And then they come to you and they beg and say, listen, there's no way I can repay it. Forgive me that debt. And you say, all right, I'll forgive you the debt. Now, what does that cost them? Nothing. What does it cost you? 500 bucks, right? Because the one who forgives pays. The one who forgives has to incur the cost of that forgiveness, By the way, this explains what for many is a mystery, why Jesus went to the cross. You see, from the cross he prays, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. On what basis was he asking that we be forgiven? Well, Jesus was on the cross paying for our sins. The wages of sin is what? Death. Right. The wages of sin is death. That means somebody sins. Somebody's got to die. Jesus died, we're told, for your sins and mine. And that's that's the mystery in its simplicity. He had to pay because he's the one who was going to forgive. Well, if we sin against each other, and if we hang out, we will. Uh, and, And so when that happens, we should and must ask forgiveness, and we need to grant forgiveness. But we need to remember that we've also sinned against God. So we need to go to him. Now these guys are saying this is blasphemy because Jesus wasn't forgiving some sin of this guy. Well, against him. Well, actually he was, but they couldn't really see that. But he wasn't just saying, Oh, you offended me. So I forgive you. No, he's saying your sins, all of your sins are forgiven you. And they are realizing and, and get this. They're doctrinally together. They're theologically correct. This is blasphemy, unless, of course, and they were so close. Some of you are so close. You're you're right on the edge of getting it. You've put this together and this together and this together, and, and you're almost at that point of logical and spiritual conclusion. And like these guys, you've figured out the doctrine and you've got the theology. You know who Jesus is. You know what Jesus did. But But here's the deal for them they're 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 this close they're saying only god can forgive sin and and this would be this is blasphemy unless of course jesus is god and if jesus is god well then he's doing what only god can do forgive sin and he wants us to be sure about this issue why because there are a whole lot of people out there saying, well, this is the way to heaven, you see. You be a good person, and when you stand at the pearly gate, you just tell them what a good person you were, and God will say, wow, that's amazing, come on in. No, it isn't going to work out that way, and here's why. There are none good, the scripture says, none righteous, to use the theological term, and that will become important here in a moment. Well, anyway, they're saying this man blasphemes, By the way, this would ultimately be the charge the high priest would make against Jesus in Matthew 27 when he says, hey, if you're the son of God, if you're the Christ, tell us. And Jesus said, hey, you've said it. It's as you say. And he tears his cloak and he says, this man's blasphemed. That was the charge. Now, they couldn't take that to Rome because Rome wouldn't care. So they had to make up stuff. He said he's going to destroy the temple. He's an insurrectionist. He's a revolutionary. Something Rome would deal with. But their charge against him was first brought out here and ultimately brought out in Matthew 27 where they said, this is blasphemy. He claims to be one with God. He claims to be the unique, only begotten son of God. He claims that unless we believe he is, in his words, unless you believe I am, sounds a little different, you will die in your sins. Well, Jesus, knowing their thoughts... What a trip to know. Jesus knows our thoughts. He knows what's going through your mind right now. And some of you are thinking, I just want out of here. I I, I gotta go. And uh, well, I don't know, but Jesus knows. And, and Jesus knowing their thoughts said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Why attributing evil to him? For which is easier? And second question is, is a wonderful question. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk. Some try to make more of this than I think Jesus really intended. He's saying, what's easier to say, this or this? Actually, he's going to say, hey, let me show you not only what I can say, but what I can do. But but the question is simple. Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven, or is it easier to say, rise up, take your bed and walk? Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven, and here's why. There's no outward, objective evidence that that's actually taken place. All you have, by the way, if in fact you've asked for forgiveness of sin, is God's word that he will forgive you. If we confess our sin, he's faithful, we're told. That means you can trust him to do it. And just, that means it's right for him to do it, to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. But the way you know you're forgiven is God says so. You trust in him, you confess your sin, he forgives you. But, but in this case, because of their unbelief and because he's surrounded with it and he's, and he's verifying and validating himself, we have the word. We have the stories. We have the, the proof. They didn't have that yet. So he says, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven? Well, of course. No one knows if anything really happened. But if you say rise up, take your bed and walk and nothing happens, well, it's pretty obvious, right? Well, everyone's going to be able to say, see, this guy's a fraud. So Jesus goes on to say, But that you may know, that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. That you may know what's Jesus' bottom line here. His bottom line is he wanted them to know that he and he alone could forgive their sins. And if they were putting two and two together, they would have had to come to the realization, Well, if only God can forgive sins... And if Jesus is forgiving sins, then Jesus is either blaspheming or he is, in fact, the Son of God and God the Son. Those were the only two choices available. And so some decided, in spite of the evidence, in spite of what they saw, to continue to walk in unbelief. Others, they're just going to be convinced and and they're going to be rejoicing. So immediately he arose and departed to his house. Now, we don't know if he had any faith prior to Jesus speaking personally to him. We do know his friends had faith because they went to great extremes to get him there. And they must have believed if they could just get him to Jesus, Jesus would heal him. Now he's been forgiven. Now he's been healed. And where does his faith come in? Well, the scripture says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So again, maybe someone else had enough faith to get you here. And they believe that if God's word will just... Be shared in your presence and it'll penetrate your heart and, and you will ask forgiveness as well. But but here's what happens. You can hear it and you can continue in unbelief or you can hear it and you can realize, man, if this be true, I need my sins forgiven. And if Jesus is the one who paid, then, well, of course, he's the only one who can forgive. And, and, and that's why he paid. And Well, that you may know the son of man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, arise. Take your bed and go to your house. The moment he heard that command, the command to do the impossible, he rose up and did the impossible. You see, it's impossible for a paralytic to walk, but Jesus commands him to do it. And wherever Jesus commands, he empowers. Later, he'll tell the guy with the withered hand, stretch out your hand. The guy could have said, I can't stretch out my hand. It's withered. But instead, he just stretches out his hand. Why? Why? Because with that command comes the empowerment, comes the ability to believe. Well, he arose, departed to his house, and the multitudes, note their response, it's twofold. When they saw it, they marveled. They were blown away as they had been so many other times thus far. And they glorified God who'd given such power to men. Now, they hadn't all processed yet. That Jesus, in order to do these things, had to be the Son of God. There were miracle workers in the Old Testament. Jesus would empower his own disciples to go out and do miracles. But Jesus was doing it by his own power and authority. It wasn't delegated. It was inherent. Well, if the first example shows someone, well, a group, bringing their friend to Jesus, the second example shows a man bringing Jesus to his friends. And this works equally well. We find Jesus passed on from there, verse 9, and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said, follow me, and he arose and followed him. Matthew was a tax collector. You'll come across the word publican in your scripture. It means the same thing, sort of a public servant, but not if you were one of his brethren. You would have thought more a public parasite or a terrible traitor. In fact, I doubt that tax collectors rate high on, you know, the most admired and loved people in our generation, but in that generation and in this society, they were absolutely hated and despised. And here's why. The tax collectors, like Matthew, they would have bought that position. And they extracted taxes. They had an agreement with the Roman government to pay a certain amount. Anything over and above that they could keep. So they would position themselves at the crossroads where traffic was coming through, where goods were moving through, and there were all sorts of taxes possible. And so lots of these guys were wealthy, lots of these guys were dishonest, and all of these guys were, by and large, I think, hated. And so Jesus sees Matthew, and he sees him sitting there at his tax office, at his tax table, and he just says, follow me, and he arose and followed him. Now, two things We need to know. Matthew didn't just, for the first time, see and hear Jesus, and Jesus says, follow me, and he kind of gets up, yes, master, you know, I follow you. It wasn't a mindless decision. It was a thoughtful decision. And no doubt Matthew had been exposed to the ministry of Jesus for some time. And we know this because Matthew, and we talked about this in our last study, Matthew had a lot to lose physically, financially, by following Jesus. And, and it wasn't like he was going from one despised group to the most admired. No, Jesus was going to, again, put him in a despised group, for but for another reason altogether. So Jesus calls Matthew, and Matthew knows who Jesus, well, he knows, may not know all about Jesus, but he knows what he's been doing, he knows what he's been teaching. He decides to leave all behind his trade, his his power, his finances, and follow after Jesus. Now, the other thing is Jesus did something kind of interesting when he built his little team of disciples. He called a zealot named Simon. If you're not familiar with the zealots, those were the most radical of that day. They were sworn to wipe out the enemies of their people. Well, if you see this, it's, it's like he takes this zealot who, for all intents and purposes, would have just as well seen Matthew dead, and if he had opportunity, probably would have killed him himself. And then he calls Matthew too, and I'm thinking, well, the scripture doesn't say so, you know, Jesus paired these guys off, and I wouldn't be surprised if he paired those two together. Why? he often does that kind of thing where he puts the most unlikely people together to do the most incredible work for him. Why? Everyone's going to look and think just that they can be together is a miracle. Just that he's not killing him is a miracle. And now they're working together in the kingdom of God. We have that here. We have sheriffs and people that have been arrested by those sheriffs. And and some of you look around and say, I knew that guy looked familiar. He arrested me once. And you're thinking, yeah, I remember that guy. I arrested him once. And you know what sheriff 's got to be forgiven just like the people they arrest. Why? Because sheriffs, just like everyone else, are sinners and it 's from god 's perspective, all have sinned that 's what the scripture says. Well, in any case, he puts them together they 're working as a part of his team. And I said, even as in the first example, they were bringing people to Jesus. Now we see Matthew bringing Jesus to people. And he does something I want to encourage you to do, especially if you're a relatively young Christian. And that is, invite your friends to your home and share the Lord with them. Tell them what God is doing in your life. Tell them what God has done in your life. Maybe you've invited them to church and they're like, I don't think so. Then just invite them over your house and share with them. When we consider the people, like Matthew, that Jesus
0: called to follow him, it can make us think about why we ourselves were called to be followers of Christ. And the enemy would undoubtedly tell us that we're not worthy. But as you consider your calling, think about what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 6.6. He says, Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Freed from slavery to sin also means freed to serve and to live your lives the way the Lord intended. And this is good news.